Welcome to the podcast for Great Figures of the New Testament, a Sunday school class offered at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I'm the Stembler Scholar, and will be the host of these lectures. The first lesson in this series focuses on Mary, the mother of Jesus, one of the most beloved figures in all of the New Testament. She is named in all four Gospels, and she plays a prominent role in the birth narratives in both the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. She appears along with the disciples in various scenes throughout Jesus' life and ministry, including that famous scene from the wedding in Canaan of Galilee, where the disciples, along with Mary, beseech Jesus to turn water into wine. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, is also there in the Gospel of John, along with other women standing near the cross at Jesus' final hour. But who is this Mary? What has she come to symbolize in the tradition and theology of the church? Is she merely an earthly mother, or is she the favored one of God? Is she a perpetual virgin, or a model of piety and faithfulness? Is she the closest thing Christian theology has to a goddess or a queen of heaven? Or is she a mediator who intercedes on behalf of her son as we pray? In the history of the church, Mary has been all of these things, and she continues to be a powerful spiritual symbol for many believers today. In this session, we'll look more closely at how the New Testament portrays Mary, as well as as how her story comes to take on a life of its own in the tradition and the theology. Let's begin with some background on Mary's name and genealogy. The name Mary, or Maria in Greek, is one of the most common female names in the first century CE. In the New Testament, there are no fewer than four and perhaps as many as six Marys named in the pages of the New Testament. There's Mary Magdalene, who we'll come back to in session three of this series. There is Mary, the sister of Martha, Mary, the wife of Clopas, the other Mary, and Mary, the mother of James and John. Now, the proliferation of Mary in the pages of the New Testament is not unfamiliar to me. In my own Italian family, we had at least five different Aunt Marys that I grew up with. There was Aunt Mary Finn, Aunt Mary Giacomo, Aunt Mary Robertino, Aunt Mary Gambino, and Aunt Mary Palladino. And as a little one, I had a very hard time keeping all of my Aunt Marys straight. The good news was, if I didn't know the name of one of my aunts and I guessed Mary, I likely would be on the right track. In the New Testament, of course, this Mary, the mother of Jesus, was not just another Mary. Her name actually goes back to a Hebrew name, Miriam, or as we know it, Miriam. Miriam in the Old Testament was the sister of Moses, and she plays a critical role in his rescue from Pharaoh. In Exodus 15, she sings with Moses a duet in celebration of the wonderful deeds of the Lord in bringing the Israelites up out of Egypt, across the dry land of the Red Sea, and on into the wilderness where they would eventually journey toward the promised land. So in naming, uh, so in in encountering the name Mary, the early church would have heard in this figure Uh, an echo of Miriam of old. They might have had some clue, in fact, in her name that she would have a pivotal role to play in something big that God was about to do in bringing good news. In terms of Mary's genealogy, the New Testament provides very little information. But church tradition has suggested two different possibilities about her lineage. From Matthew's Gospel, we learn 
that Joseph was a descendant of the house of David and thus had royal lineage in his blood. If Mary also was from the same tribe or family as Joseph, which is perhaps quite likely, then Mary too would have been a descendant of the house of David. Now this is plausible, uh, and if it's the case, then there's some implication that Mary came from royal lineage. In contrast, in the Gospel of Luke, we learn that Elizabeth is a descendant of Aaron. Since Mary is known to be a relative Elizabeth, a relative of Elizabeth, perhaps her cousin, then it might be implied that Mary too is a descendant of Aaron, and if so, then she might be understood to have some sort of priestly lineage. In either case, the New Testament does not speak in definitive terms about Mary's background, though we might speculate either a royal or a priestly lineage applies. Whatever Mary's background might be, she is the subject of scandal in both the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke. Though they portray different stories, in both cases, the early drama of these Gospels centers around the figure Mary, a young woman who found herself to be pregnant prior to being married. It's hard to overestimate the gravity of this situation. According to law, Mary could have been stoned for having committed adultery outside of marriage, or at the very least, she could have become an outcast. It would have been a point of shame for Joseph to be associated with her, though as a righteous man, the text tells us that he decides to dismiss Mary quietly. It's also important to note the age of Mary at this juncture. While the Gospels do not provide a specific age for Mary, it would not have been uncommon for women at this time to have gotten married at an exceedingly young age, perhaps as early as 13 or 14 or 15. So as we rethink these early stories of Mary, we must remember how young she was, perhaps even in what in modern day would have been a high school student. Imagine then her predicament, a young woman, perhaps as young as 14 or 15, finds herself to be pregnant. It would, in fact, have been a scandal in the ancient world, befitting of a reality TV show on Bravo today. Let's look at how both Matthew and Mark deal with this particular scandal, and how, in particular, they both resolve the situation. In Matthew 1, 20-22, the scandal is resolved through divine intervention. Listen to the text. But just when he, that is Joseph, had resolved to dismiss Mary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How exactly Joseph would have understood this message from the angel, we simply don't know. But what we do know is that he responded in faith. He believed this messenger, this angel, and what he had to say. And he trusted the explanation without further detail. But the Gospel of Matthew doesn't stop here with divine intervention. The Gospel writer provides a theological explanation of this strange encounter between the angel and Joseph. Let's pick up with Matthew 1, starting at verses 22. The Gospel writer says, All of this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. 
Now, Matthew here is quoting from a well-known passage from Isaiah. For Matthew, Mary is the virgin of Isaiah's prophecy. But there's a curious translation issue here. Matthew faithfully copies Isaiah 17 from what would have been his Bible. It would have been a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which would have been written originally in Hebrew. The Greek word that we have as virgin, parthenos, is what Matthew would have seen. But what's particularly interesting is that the Hebrew word alma, which is found in the original versions of the Old Testament, doesn't necessarily mean virgin, as does parthenos in Greek. Rather, alma in Hebrew means something close to young women. Now, a young woman can, of course, be a virgin, and some virgins are, of course, young women. But, but virgin would not be the most natural English translation for the Hebrew word alma. Thus, while the Greek translation that Matthew would have worked with includes a Greek word that specifically means virgin, the original Hebrew manuscript has a word that means simply young woman. Now, Some Jews at the time of the early church actually accused the Christians of tampering with the translation of Isaiah 7.14. They accused the Christians of intentionally mistranslating the Hebrew word Alma so as to bend Isaiah's prophecy towards an interpretation that would make sense of the virgin birth of Christ. Now, this might be a bit of a stretch, but in either case, we're left with a certain curiosity. Matthew's gospel draws on a Greek translation whose meaning is different than the original Hebrew of the Old Testament. Yet because Matthew's translation works its way into our New Testament and is thus canonized, we are left with a situation where there is a difference between the Hebrew we have in Isaiah 7.14 and the Greek that we have in Matthew's gospel. A curious translation issue indeed. However we render these words, the point is clear. For Matthew, Mary is the woman of Isaiah's prophecy. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, a slightly different thing happens. Luke is going to resolve the scandal of Mary's pregnancy, also with divine intervention, but it's going to be of a slightly different sort. In the Gospel of Luke, in the first chapter, an angel also appears, but he does not come to Joseph but rather he comes directly to Mary. He calls out to her in the opening lines, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, the language here in Greek is also very interesting. Greetings uh, in Latin, in translation, is Ave, from which we get the opening line of the famous hymn, Ave Maria. Favored one, uh, in this passage, is a passive participle from a Greek word, uh, Karatao, from which we get English words like karatas, or love, or grace. This line, greetings favored one, the Lord is with you, uh, functions as the opening line of the well-known Catholic prayer, Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Now, when Mary first receives this message from the angel, she puzzles over what this could mean. She ponders it in her heart. The angel, seeing her hesitation, goes on to encourage her not to be afraid, for Mary, in fact, has, had, has found favor with God. So for Luke, Mary is not exactly Isaiah's version. In fact, 
Luke does not reference Isaiah 7.14 at all. Rather, for Luke, Mary is the favored one of God, one who, through God's mercy and grace, has received the favor of bearing God's Son. It is at this point that Luke provides a scene not found in the Gospel of Mary. After Mary's encounter with the angel, she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And upon seeing Mary come, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps with joy. This baby, of course, is John the Baptist, who we'll hear much more about in our next session, which focuses on that figure. In either case, Mary responds to this greeting with Elizabeth with a wonderful hymn known as the Magnificat, which is the Latin translation of the first line of this passage. The beginning of the hymn goes like this. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So not only Mary So not only is Mary the favored one of God, but she also, here in this hymn, is the model disciple, ascribing loyalty and praise to this God who has done wonderful things in her virgin birth. Now, in both birth accounts in Matthew and Luke, Mary is involved in something miraculous and extraordinary. She's either Isaiah's long-ago predicted virgin, or she's the favored one of God and a model disciple. But we must not forget, despite this spectacular beginning to Mary's story, we must not forget that she is also an earthly mother, and thus not immune to the everyday worries and concerns and hopes and joys of what we know as parenting today. And if you are a mom, uh, you can think of your experiences with your children growing up, and to know that these two were Mary's experiences of the young Jesus, though even though she knew that this would be the Son of God, she also experienced Jesus just like any other baby or toddler or, or tween or young adolescent. And in several places throughout the Gospels, we get a wonderful glimpse into this earthly side of Mary, the mother of Jesus. My favorite example comes in Luke 2, 41 to 51. In this story, Mary and Joseph have gone to Jerusalem for Passover as was their custom. On their return trip, and unknown to them, Jesus decides to stay behind. It takes a whole day for Mary and Joseph to realize that the young Jesus was not with them. And so they circle back to Jerusalem, and for three days they look for their 12-year-old child. We can The text doesn't describe it in detail, but we can imagine the panic and despair that they must have felt. It would have been five days since they last saw Jesus, and and in and among the crowds of Jerusalem, they surely must have believed that Jesus was lost forever or that something terrible happened to him. But then they eventually find him back in the temple, sitting down with the teachers, asking them questions about the about the scriptures. And there is at this point that the narrative continues. We pick up with Luke 2, verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. The Greek word translated anxiety here 
literally means to experience physical pain. It's a word used elsewhere in scripture to refer to torture. And I think that captures the sort of anguish this young mother would have felt at discovering her child uh, there in the temple. Certainly she would have been glad to see him, but certainly she would have been frustrated and, dare I say, mad that the child had stayed behind and not told them. What's interesting here is Jesus' response. We'll pick up in verse 49. Jesus said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they, and they being Mary and Joseph, did not understand what he said to them. This is an interesting case where, Mary, where we see Mary and Joseph only just beginning to, ter- beginning to come to terms with what it means for them to be the parents of God's Son, God in flesh in this person of Jesus Christ. There's an interesting epilogue uh, to this story in verse 51. Then he went down with them and he came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. What's interesting here is that the narrator emphasizes that after this event, Jesus was obedient to them. I think he does this so as to uh, emphasize that Jesus was not disobedient to the commandment to honor his father and his mother. In fact, I think the point of the story is that Jesus was honoring his earthly father, even if that came at the expense of some anxiety and worry. Perhaps more than any other figure in the New Testament, other than, of course, Jesus, Mary's story has spurred the theological imagination of the church. And in the centuries preceding or following her death, uh, many different ideas began to develop about who Mary was and where she came from and what was true about her. She was a point of fascination for the early church, and that fascination very much continued through the Middle Ages and even in through the Protestant Reformation. One of the particular theologies that develops around, the vir- around Mary was that she was a perpetual virgin. And Ia Parthenos in the Greek. That is, not only was she a virgin prior to the, con- the miraculous conception of Jesus, but she remained a virgin the rest of her life, meaning that she never engaged in normal sexual relations. This would mean that Jesus is her only biological son. Well, by the fourth century, this doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary was widely supported by church fathers. Fathers, And by the 7th century, it was affirmed in various ecumenical councils. This doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary uh, plays an important role in both Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions, but it was also even affirmed by Luther, Zwingli, and Wesley in, the, uh, in and through the Protestant Reformation, although it, does, it was not affirmed by Calvin and is not generally held in and among Reformed churches. What's curious about this widely accepted doctrine about Mary's perpetual virginity is that it's not well supported in the scriptures themselves. There are no fewer than five references to Jesus having biological brothers and sisters in the gospel accounts. Now, I have to admit there's some ambiguity here. The word for brother in Greek, adelphos, can, of course, mean biological sibling, but it can also mean something like 
cousin or close associate or fellow citizen. If you think of it, we do something very similar with the word brother in English today. We mean brother in terms of biological siblings, but we can also refer to fraternity brothers or band of brothers. In these latter two cases, we don't mean, of course, biologically, biological relations, but we rather mean close companions or compatriots. So, was Mary a perpetual virgin? We simply don't know. The most straightforward reading of the New Testament implies that she was not a perpetual virgin and that, in fact, she had several other kids with Joseph. But church history on this point has said yes. And so in either case, we must uh, acknowledge that there's a discrepancy here between the, the biblical witness of the gospel stories and the tradition that the church has maintained throughout the centuries. Now, why would it have been important for Mary to have been considered a perpetual virgin? Well, this is probably a complex issue that touches upon both theological and cultural and social matters in the early church. But one idea is that celibacy became increasingly valued in early Catholic tradition. And as a result of that, Mary's perpetual virginity became an increasingly important symbol or idea that went on to support the idea of celibacy as a particular uh, pious value among believers. Now, another theology that begins to develop around Mary, the mother of Jesus, is what's known as the Immaculate Conception. This post-biblical tradition uh, is often misunderstood At a popular level, we can often think of uh, what's known in football as the Immaculate Reception, which has to do with uh, an amazing catch in a 1972 playoff game between the Pittsburgh Steelers um, and the Raiders. But of course, that's not what we refer to when we talk about the Immaculate Conception. There are other more theological misunderstandings that go along with this doctrine. Some suppose that it's in reference to the conception of Jesus in Mary, but in fact, the Immaculate Conception refers to Mary's conception by her mother, Anna. Also, another misunderstanding is that this doctrine has to do with Mary being sinless, but in fact, that this is not the case. The Immaculate Conception is a doctrine that affirms that Mary was born free of original sin. Not that she never sinned, but simply that she was born free of original sin. This doctrine, although widely held in the church throughout the centuries, was only affirmed as an official Catholic teaching in 1854. Now, the question is, why do you need a doctrine that has to do with Mary's conception? The Bible itself, of course, does not refer to Mary's parents, and it says nothing at all about Mary's conception. Well, In the 4th century, the doctrine of original sin was beginning to develop. And in it, it affirmed the idea that original sin was passed along through conception in the womb, almost as a genetic trait from one generation to the next. So the idea here is that in conception, the idea of original sin, which comes from Adam and Eve, is passed on from parent to child. Now, the logic of this doctrine went something like this. How could the Son of God, that is Jesus, be born and conceived in a womb that was touched by original sin? Well, the logic of the early church said this simply was not possible. So a doctrine was needed then 
that clarified that Mary's womb had not been touched by original sin. And the doctrine goes something like this. This is from the statement of the Catholic Church in 1854. That the most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, and by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original So, because of developing ideas around the notion of original sin, the church needed to invent, in a way, a backstory for Mary that explained how she could be born without original sin and thus have a womb not tainted for the Son of God. This theology was a point of dispute within church history, but as I mentioned, became official Catholic doctrine. There is one final aspect of Mary's backstory that I want to mention. Throughout history, in both Catholic and Protestant traditions, believers across the world have claimed that the Virgin Mary has appeared to them in various forms. These sorts of apparitions of the Mary, the mother of Jesus, are quite ancient. I'll name just several examples of them to give you a taste of the traditions that exist about appearances of Mary. The first has to do with the notion of the Black Madonna or the Black Mother. There are hundreds. There were hundreds of appearances throughout Eastern Europe of the Virgin Mary from the 12th through 15th century, and as a result of that, these appearances, as tradition goes, spurred on an artistic tradition in which Mary, the mother of Jesus, is depicted with black skin. Uh, there, in fact, are 450 to 500 Black Madonnas in Europe. Uh, And there are at least 180 of these are in France alone. Now, how did this happen that that the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to be depicted in... Well, at one level, we would admit that a black skinned Mary would have been much closer to how the Palestinian born Mary of history would have actually looked like than many of those pale, white-skinned Marys that we find in American Christian visual culture today. But the other reason for this tradition, other than historical accuracy, actually goes to a particular issue in the history of biblical interpretation. In church history, Mary at some point came to be associated with the woman mentioned in the Song of Songs. In in chapter 1, verse 5, this woman says, I am black and beautiful. So as Mary become, comes to be identified with this woman, uh, she is also identified as someone with black skin. And so, through these apparitions and through this curious biblical interpretation, there is a long and interesting history of Mary being depicted with black skin in Eastern Europe and throughout France. Now, these are not the only instances in which Mary which people have claimed that Mary has appeared to them. A prominent example happens in the 16th century, where there's an appearance of the Virgin um, in Mexico. Now, official Catholic accounts state that the Virgin Mary appeared four times before Juan Diego, and one more time before Juan Diego's uncle. In these instances, Mary came uh, and appeared and spoke in the native uh, tongue of the Aztec Empire. And the maiden Mary identified herself as the mother of Jesus, the mother of the true deity, and she asked for a church to be built at the site in her honor. 
Well, of course, a church was built there, a beautiful basilica. And to this day, uh, this basilica is the most visited Catholic pilgrimage site in the entire world. There, vis- visitors come from, uh, from many different nations and cultural backgrounds um, to somehow experience this place where Mary, was said, where Mary uh, is said to have appeared to believers centuries before. Another uh, curious example of Mary apparitions happens closer to home here in Atlanta. In Conyers, Georgia, which is just about 30 miles east outside of the city, and from 1990 through 1998, there were said to be uh, dozens of appearances of the Virgin Mary to a woman named Nancy Fowler. She claimed that the Virgin Mary appeared to her and relayed messages to all citizens of the United States. And these messages range from... Uh, admonitions to pray to warnings of war. Now, in the early 1990s, as these apparitions were happening, uh, the roads to Conyers were clogged with pilgrims yearning to hear Mary's message. On some some days, as many as 80,000 pilgrims flocked to Conyers to even just be in the presence of the place that that spoke of Mary's apparitions. They came from every direction, but many, many of the visitors um, came from South Florida in uh, churches there. So, at both Conyers and in Guadalupe, in Mexico, and in Eastern Europe, the people who have encountered Mary have claimed, uh, have reported, made reports of healings. Uh, and if you go to these pilgrim sites, you'll find, in many instances, uh, abandoned wheelchairs and crutches. Now, did these appearances really happen? Were people really healed by the Virgin Mary? Or was just a matter or was this simply a matter of mind over matter? Well, I think in some ways these are the wrong questions. These appearances of the Virgin Mary um, testify to the ongoing power of the story of the mother of Jesus and what she has come to symbolize, not only in the pages of the New Testament, but also in the traditions and theologies of the church throughout the world. And in this way, the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus, does not come to a close at the end of the Gospels, nor even at the end of the New Testament itself. But rather, this story continues to grow and inspire people of faith throughout the world. (music) 